morning, morning. This is Tell Them I Am. I'm your Ramadan friend, Misha Youssef. So remember how I said that Rumi is this iconic Muslim poet? Well, that's something that Muslims already know. Most non-Muslims don't know that. In 2017, I read this article in The New Yorker titled The Erasure of Islam from the Poetry of Rumi. I know, look at me, I'm so intellectual reading The New Yorker. Anyway, Rosina Ali, the writer, talked to a Rumi scholar named Omid Safi. And here's what I learned from Rosina and Omid. That the separation of Islam and Rumi started way back in the 1800s. When Islam made its way to the West, the translators were, like, so confused. Like, how did the Quran inspire such mystical poetry? So they decided that the two weren't connected. Omid says they decided that these people are mystical not because of Islam, but in spite of it. And it gets worse. Last year, this Twitter account called Persian Poetics posted a thread titled, the Orientalizing of Maulana Rumi. And in it, they went into a lot of detail about not just the separation of Rumi and Islam, but how Rumi's poetry has been completely mistranslated. If you have a Rumi book or translation, can you go open it up right now? Who translated it? Was it a guy named Coleman Barks? I bet it was. Coleman Barks is a Tennessee-born writer. As far as I know, He's never studied Farsi, the original language of Rumi's poetry. And in his translations, his best-selling translations of Rumi, he's taken out most, if not all, references to Islam and the Quran. When Rosina Ali asked him about reading the Quran, the inspiration for Rumi's poetry, Coleman Bark said, the Quran is hard to read. You know, some people might say, what does it matter? Or even, it's a good thing Coleman Barks took out the references to Islam. It makes Rumi's poetry more universal. Then it's not just for Muslims, but for everybody. But when we read what Omid Safi calls the spiritually colonized version of Rumi, we miss out on its full splendor. Rumi's references to Islam are little doors inside his poetry. Doors that take us to lush, beautiful universes. Places that give his poetry deeper meaning. I used to think that I needed to lock away aspects of myself, sanitize my identity so that I could be more palatable to more people. But now I know that it's not these parts of myself that limit me. My Muslimness, my womanhood, my Pakistaniness. They free me. They're doors that expand my world into something that transcends category. My name is Tarek Abdul-Wahid, and I am best known for being the first French basketball player to get drafted and to play in the NBA. I grew up in the 80s, right? 80s, early 90s. I never did the things other people wanted me to do. It's, I mean, it, it, France is a very, we're going to conform kind of country. Let's conform, right? It's, it, this never was me. I never wanted to do the things that my teammates did, that my schoolmates did. 
And I haven't seen a team picture when I was younger where I'm dressed like everybody else. I always wanted to do things differently. So I'm a decent basketball player at the time, and I, I get selected to the, the junior French national team. So that's the under 17 or something like that. And we get invited to Koblenz, Germany to play the qualifier of the European Championship. So we go there and we play this qualifying tournaments, and this scout sees some of us play and then t basically tells us, guys, out of this tournament, I picked the six best players and all of you guys are invited to the ABCD camp this summer in Irvine, California. It's the high school camp for the best freshmen, sophomore, and juniors. And all these kids want to do is get in there, play against each other, compete, and see where they fall in the ranking. And that basically is going to say where you're going where is your opportunity so he tells me this i mean i'm 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 just i am losing my mind i mean for afro-european basketball players this is just like we're gonna make it we're gonna go where no one has gone before this is american basketball this is where we thought when we used to watch highlights of either college or pro basketball we thought that the floor was like soft so they could jump higher, like bounces further. Like, there's no way you can jump like that. There's no way you can play like that. So I go tell my mom, I say, mom, this is it. This is, this is my break. But we don't have the money to fly to LA. So we have to get all the aunties and everybody together and working to get that money, get the ticket, right? We managed to get the ticket and they, they saw me off. Like aunties came out, dad came out, mom came out. If my grandmother could have came out, she would have came out. And you can see it on their faces. Their look was like, we're one generation away from being gold diggers in the middle of the French Guyanese jungle. The gold diggers, the real ones, the ones who died looking for gold. And our son is gonna go to America, live his dream. You can't be stopped. If you come from that far, you can't be stopped. I get to the flight, right? Super excited. I, my life is about to change. Absolutely, my life is about to change. I get on the flight, obviously as coach, I'm folded in half because those seats at the time were even worse than they are today, right? And I'm flying to LAX. I get there, LAX, one of the biggest airport in the country. I arrive, you walk, you do customs, you do all that stuff. Then you get in the hallway. That's where you have the limo drivers with their little Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones and Mr. Johnson and Mrs. Campbell and, right? And I don't see my name. Five minutes goes by, 10 minutes goes by, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, no one, 30 minutes, no one, one hour, no one. This place is empty at this point. 
And I thought to myself, this is probably the biggest mistake of my life. I should have stayed home. But then I thought, nah, dude, <laughs> you got to figure this out. You got to figure it out. First of all, I don't speak English. That's the first, that's the first hurdle. So I have to find an information booth somewhere. Thank God the word in French and English for information is the same. So I see the information after I wander around for a little bit. I get to a booth. Yes, can I help you, sir? The lady can tell I'm lost, right? I'm tall, but I'm not. She can tell I'm a child, right? Um, do you know where you're trying to go? The only thing I know is UC Irvine. Oh, boy. Okay, follow me. Let's see what we can do. So she walks me outside to where the shuttles are. She says, you know, you can get you in this van. And go where you want to go. You're in for a long ride, kid. So there are strangers in the, in the car. I quickly understand that that's the way they get dropped off wherever either they park their car or they're going home or what have you, right? What I did not understand is that I was going to be the last stop and I basically visited the entire LA metropolitan area because he drove for hours and hours. He's dropping one paper, hey, good night, bye, bye, bye. Another person and the time goes on and on. Now I'm really freaking out because I'm thinking, what if when I get there, it's, it's closed? You know, you don't understand. You're a child. You don't really understand what, where you're going, why you're going, how it's going to work out, right? And after hours of driving, this guy drops me off, and it's almost midnight. I'm exiting the van, and it's kind of a courtyard. And I can tell that it's right because there's tall guys. You know, you can tell it's basketball atmosphere. There's, there's ABCD camp polos being worn by people walking around, right? So I carried a suitcase to one of the classrooms. And I, you know, and I pull my head into the room, into the class, see a few people. I walk in. And in my broken English, I think I said, no one picked me up. And I can tell that these dudes are like relieved because some of them are on the phone trying to figure out something, maybe figure out where they lost one of the campers, right? <laughs> Some of them are like, how did you make it here, man? This is impossible, right? Some of them are like, yes, that's him. Like they, they, like they found their car keys after having lost their car keys the whole day, right? You, you, you know that feeling? Oh, yes, I got, we got him. All right. But me, I'm pissed. I'm like, dude, anything could have happened to me. And this gentleman comes up to me, 6'4", slicked hair, redhead, pale, very, it was an apologetic walk. And he looked at me with really an air of, I'm sorry. Like, dude, I'm sorry. And then he explained, with maybe a little word signs because I don't really understand English. So there's a lot of hand gesturing, plane, uh, car, pick you up, me, me, pick you up, right? And so he basically said, hey, I thought you were white, and I thought you were seven feet tall. But he was there. 
He was actually physically there, but he absolutely missed me. At the time, I was, it's like I was shocked. I had questions. Where I'm from, we don't talk about race. Culturally, you identify with being French before you identify with being black. It's, absolute, it's absolutely different. There is no Afro-regionalism in France. So you're going to have your fun with your family and you're going to eat Caribbean food and you're going to dance Zouk music. You're going to do all that. But if you want to get your job, you're going to have to look exactly the same, talk exactly the same, think exactly the same as your run-of-the-mill French white guy. But here, you're being put in a box. You're being put in a category that maybe you don't want to be part of it. Maybe you do, but maybe you don't. What about the, for the people who don't? How, how does it work if you're an African-American here and you want to be, and you want to be a human being? And you want, to, you want to say, my race is the human race. How does it work for, for these guys and these ladies? How, how do they, how do we, right? Think about me, this is crazy. So there's confusion there for me at that age. There's confusion. So now the next question is, so okay, I'm black. So what does that mean? What does that mean, right? Because I'm in the, I'm in the country of Eddie Murphy. I'm in the country of Michael Jackson. No, Prince. And them. I mean, these are the guys, right? But I guess these guys... They are also in that box. So what does that mean? And what's absolutely amazing is that I discovered what it meant during that camp, being with these players. Okay, the first thing I understood is that these guys were amazing at basketball. Like, the, So my assumption that American basketball, black American basketball players were amazing was proven right. The second one is when I talk about American blackness discovered, it's really the fact that all these kids were from different places. So you some kids the different haircuts, the different way of wearing their socks. No, you're laughing, but this is the, to us, this is everything. Like this, these kids in Pittsburgh, I think, from Pennsylvania, would wear like layers of socks. And this was a thing that they did in Pittsburgh, right? And then, then there's the Louisiana kids. There's something else that they did. Some dudes like would roll their shorts up. As a French kid, I could identify the difference. I realized the difference between kids from the South, kids from the East, kids from the West Coast. These are not, they're not the same at all, at all. And, and this is how you look around and you're thinking, whoa, this is how rich and how complex and how beautiful this thing is. And this is where I discover that. And this is where my mind is blown. Discovering blackness, it's like discovering freedom. It's like, oh, I'm going to stand out with a whole bunch of other people standing out. This is why the kid from Pittsburgh is not wearing the socks the same way as the kid from LA. Because both of them want to stand out, right? They're part of the same culture but they're different because this box is not just a box. It's a box filled with other amazing, rich, and beautiful other boxes. That's how this culture is so strong in a sense and, and so beautiful in another sense. It's, not, it's, a, it's, a, it's a labyrinth in this box. It's so complex and so beautiful that 
I felt, as much as I was completely foreign to the whole situation, I felt at home. Tell Them I Am is presented by Higher Ground Audio and Spotify and produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Misha Youssef. The executive producers at Higher Ground Audio are Dan Fearman, Mukta Mohan, and Anna Holmes. Janae Maribel is editorial assistant. From Dustlight Productions, Mary Knopf is our executive producer. Ariana Gharib Lee and Jonathan Shiflett are our producers. Arwen Nix is our editor. Valeria Alarcone is our apprentice. This episode was written by me, Mary Knopf, Arwen Nix, and Ariana Garibli. It was sound designed by Jonathan Shiflett. The voice of the airport lady in this episode is by Ariana Garibli. Valentina Rivera is our engineer. David Leinard is our composer and made our gorgeous original music. Emin Ahmed is our illustrator and the creator of our episodic art. Elizabeth Goodspeed made our amazing series tile art. Special thanks to Rachel Garcia, our development and operations coordinator. From Spotify, executive producers are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, and Courtney Holt. This podcast was originally a production of LAS Studios.